Father, the Apostle Paul tells us, tells us that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we are most miserable. There is no hope. But Lord, because He lives, because He lives, we too shall live. We have hope, a living hope in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Father, this morning as we look into Your Word for a few moments, we pray that we would have that living hope abound in our hearts and our lives. We would see what You have for us. That we would walk in such a way that would be worthy of Your calling. And it's in the name of our living hope, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So on March the the 5th in 1770, shots rang out in Boston, Massachusetts. Five were killed, six were wounded. And this became what you know as the Boston Massacre. The colonists arrested the British soldiers who did the, the shooting and they put them on trial for, for murder. It was a slam dunk case. And after all, British soldiers firing on innocent civilians is not a good picture. But John Adams, he was the first vice president of the United States of America and the second president. He was also a defense attorney and something didn't feel right to him. And he thought, yeah, the fact is they did shoot, but there's got to be more to the story. But how could he prove it? During the trial, it came out that one of the men who was shot, name of Patrick Carr, for him, death was inevitable and would indeed come a few days later. But he was tended to by Dr. Jeffries. And Dr. Jeffries spoke to him about this and he refused to blame the soldiers for the death. In fact, he said that those soldiers were so pressed, so harassed, hit by so many stones and bottles that he had come from Ireland and he had seen soldiers, British soldiers, suppress crowds in the past. He said he had never seen soldiers endure as half as much as they did before they fired. Because that man's testimony, those soldiers, some of the charges were reduced and some were acquitted all together. That was the first example in American law of what's called a dying declaration. It is assumed by law that the last words that you say, you have no need to do anything other than to speak the truth. And so that was the assumption. And the importance of this story lies in the weight of final words. Even to this day, federal rules of evidence allow under certain circumstances dying declarations to be submitted in the court. Now this doesn't sound like the beginning of a Christmas message, does it? Uh, I mean, some may feel it a little uncompassionate to talk about 
life and death at this at this point, but especially at the beginning of, of Christmas week, yet it is entirely impossible to miss this. It's entirely impossible to dodge this. The reason? Because John wrote in his Gospel in 1930, uh, chapter 19 and verse 30, this. Jesus' dying declaration on the cross was, It is finished. The word that's used there, uh, tetelestai, means to complete its intended purpose. To, to finish, to accomplish, to pay the debt. But we ask, I do anyway, what? What is finished? What, when Jesus said, it is finished, did He mean that His life was done? I, I, okay, I'm fixed to breathe my last. It's, it's finished. My life is over. What was He talking about when He said, it is finished? Last words are key words. But so are first words. Especially if they explain those last words. This isn't our text. Today, but we're going to look here briefly. So, if you do have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. In Luke 4, 17 through 21, the scripture tells us, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And he began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, a little context here. After the birth narrative, which Luke so beautifully tells, he then goes on to John the Baptist. And then he talks about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about his temptation. And after the temptation is when this event occurs. And it's the first time, the first recorded message that Jesus ever gave. Now, he had already created a little bit of buzz out there uh, because he was teaching, he was preaching, but we don't know what he was saying. We do know what he said here. When he revealed himself, he quoted Isaiah 61. So I want to set the the picture for you here. Okay, so he enters the synagogue. He's got a little buzz around him, so everybody wants to hear what he has to say because they're all asking a question. And the question is not at that point, is he the Messiah? It's more along the lines of, is he a prophet? Who Who is this man? And so he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. Now, the scroll of Isaiah is about 24 feet long, just in case you were curious it's a it's not like a they did not have books it was a scroll 
So even if it was rolled up to the middle like this, okay, he still had to go 12 feet. That's a long way. So the anticipation in the group was growing. And then he stops at Isaiah 61, which is toward the very end of the scroll. He reads the text, and then he drops a bombshell. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what was the, what was the response of the crowd? The response of the crowd was to become so angry, they tried to kill him. They tried to take him out and throw him off a cliff. They tried to destroy him. Why? Because when Jesus said, the Lord has anointed me, and he said, this is fulfilled in me, they knew he was talking now not about being a prophet, but about being the Messiah. In fact, the word, uh, this Hebrew word, Mashach, means to anoint. That's where we get our word Messiah from. That's where it comes from. And it's the act of taking oil, presumably olive oil, and pouring it on the head and allowing it to run uh, down, all the way down to the feet, in fact. And it was to symbolize, to indicate that this person was anointed for a particular purpose. And it had been uh, some 800 years since Isaiah wrote in the time that Jesus was uh, ministering. But the people were still hoping for the Messiah, but they knew He wasn't going to come from Nazareth. Because nothing good, as the Scripture says, comes from Nazareth. And so they wanted the Messiah because He was going to be coming and to restore all things broken. Last time we spoke, this time just a moment. Our world is broken. And its redemption relies entirely on Jesus Christ. And in Christianity, it's different from every other religion, every other faith, because in every religion, in every faith, while there is teaching about how to live morally, while there is teaching in most faiths about how to approach God, they're all centered on you. Christianity is not centered on you. It is not about you. It is all about Jesus Christ. It is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis points out how important this is because you get so many people, I get tired of hearing it, and this is all the way after I got saved, I mean all the way back to my early 20s, when they would say, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, He was a good man. If you say he was a good man, you don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know anything about Jesus and you don't know anything about theology. You don't even know anything about logic. Why? Because you cannot simply say he was a good man. As far as that goes, that's true. But that's not the entire story. C.S. Lewis points it out this way. He says you've got three options. You have three options. He was either who he said he was, the Messiah, or he was a liar. And a liar is not a good man. Or he was a lunatic. And while a lunatic may be a good person, they are not aware of reality. 
You cannot say that he was simply a good man. Jesus doesn't leave you that option. Which is, oh, by the way, why Christianity is so hated. It's because Christianity is exclusive. We say there is only one way to God. And that's through Jesus Christ. The core of the teaching of Christ is this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father but by Me. In another place, He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And this is how this works. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. To love Jesus is to love God. But the same is also true. To deny Jesus is to deny God. And it's this passage that he establishes his purpose from. When he says, it is finished, this is what he's talking about. And that's found in Isaiah 61. And I think today we'll probably get through the first part of verse 2. So 1 and 2, Isaiah 61 Verses 1 and 2, and even that 2a. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is so important. The primary verb, the main verb, the thing that controls this entire uh, passage is He has anointed me. Anointed. Messiah. Set apart. Endorsed by God. He's the anointed one. Why, Why don't we call Him the Messiah? Ordinarily, we don't say Jesus the Messiah. Not in the West. We say Jesus Christ. Are Jesus the Christ? Well, it's simple. Christ is the Greek word that's equivalent for the Hebrew word. It just simply means the one who is anointed, the anointed one. But anointed for what? What was the purpose that he fulfilled so that he could cry out on the cross his dying declaration, it is finished. So the mission of the anointed one was in fact the ministry of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. And that was what? It says it right here. To preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to free the captives, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So first, to proclaim the the good news to the poor. The poor are those who, who lack something. Whether they lack knowledge or whether they lack material resources or whether they lack housing or or food or provisions or even opportunities for better life. Poor speaks of the want of something. The implication here is that the poor that he's speaking of also lack hope. So when they look into the future, they see no hope. They only see more of what they have. In fact, in the time of Jesus Christ, the affluent Jews despised the poor. And yet, it's wonderful, isn't it, that Jesus Christ centered His ministry on the poor. And the part of our difficulty 
in the West is that we think that if we meet the needs of the poor, i.e. food, clothing, shelter, which we should, when we have the capacity and the capability to do so. I'm not saying anything bad about that. The thing is, Jesus did not come to do that. Even though His ministry was centered on the poor, He did not clothe them. He did not feed them. The 5,000 weren't poor. They were just inconvenient for them. they got to go all the way back and all the way... They weren't, they were, I'm sure there were poor among them, but that's not what He was doing. He came to proclaim the good news to them. Because spiritually, biblically, the poor ones are the ones who do not have a right relationship with God. And He's saying here, this is the good news. You can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so why is that good news? <laughs> uh, yesterday during the men's uh, prayer, uh, prayer meeting, I st- told the story about how last week I had to write a paper. It was a paper I didn't want to write. I didn't, I just, I'm, I'm not interested in this kind of stuff, but I didn't have a choice. You know, school says you write a paper, you write a paper. And so uh, it was about a book that one of uh, a former professors from Dallas Seminary back in the, in the mid, early and mid-80s who had left the seminary because he could no longer sign the, the doctrinal statement. Anyway, in his book, he claims that when he looked at people, so don't get weirded out, I cannot do this. But labels would appear above their head telling what sin they were involved with. Labels they would have. And, and, and if he resisted saying something about, again, I, I don't have his power. <laughs> Not here. Actually, I do. But I'll tell you what it is in just a moment. And if he didn't say anything, it would start blinking. You've got you to gotta, you gotta, you gotta challenge this person. And, then, and if he still resisted it, it would go neon on him. Boom, boom, boom. So I told this, and, and, and uh, because we actually encountered one another quite a bit when I was in uh, Dallas Seminary back in the day, um, I mused out loud, uh, I wonder if he saw any labels over my head. And that's when Dick said, Dick said the sign would spell forgiven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, We are not in bondage. We have been freed. And I know we sometimes sin, but we are no longer under the domain of sin. We are in the family, if we know Him, of Jesus Christ. We are no longer poor spiritually. We are not spiritually impoverished. We are free. And here's why it's good news. There is no pit so deep, no chain, so strong that He will not break it. Not that He cannot or He would not. He will. He will break it so that you might be free. In fact, He is God's anointed to do what? Think about this. He was anointed by God to set you free. If we're in chains and we know Christ, they're chains that we've put on ourselves. 
Jesus Christ uh, takes them away. And if the Son makes you free, what? You are free indeed. The price of your sin, the payment for your sin, was forever paid when Jesus Christ died on the cross. It is finished. Your sin will never come up in glory, ever. It will not. It is forgiven. To say that it will is to diminish diminish the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Second, He came up to do something else. His purpose was not only to proclaim the good news to the poor, but to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, while brokenhearted in this sense certainly means the tragedies in our lives, the betrayals in our lives, the failures, our own personal failures and failures of others against us, or even death, that God is there for you. And I say amen to that. God does bind our wounds, and I am thankful for that. But from the standpoint of what Isaiah is saying here, and from the standpoint of what Jesus Christ said in the synagogue in Nazareth, that's really not what He's talking about. God does do that. Amen. But what He's talking about here is something far deeper because I know, I know because they're in my own life. And I know I'm simply representative of all other people, as are you, that we all have broken places in our hearts, in our lives. Some have broken hearts. And having borne witness, especially as a chaplain, to many, many sad stories through my career, and even Barb and I just last night witnessed an automobile accident about nearly one this morning when I, after I'd picked her up from the airport where there were fatalities. And we had to stay at the site, give our information to the police. There's sadness. There are broken places. I tell you what, Christmas is ruined for those folks. But God also heals mercifully. Wonderful stories, even from tragedies like we witnessed last night, where the Lord is able to put things back together. Not the same. Not the same. Different. But still a life. A life that has meaning and a life that has worth. And even even when the pottery pieces are put back together, the light of Christ shines through. Those aren't the times He's talking about, even though He does that. You know what He's talking about? He's talking about shattered. That's what the word means. Shattered beyond repair. It's not like you have little pieces. It talks about pottery. It's not like you have little pieces that you can glue together. It's dust. There's nothing to glue. There's no, there is no putting it back together. It's ruined forever. Lysa Turquoise said you can't glue dust and that now once something so precious is reduced 
to nothing. So much that it's weightless and the slightest breeze could carry it away. <laughs> Dust. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking, when he says bind up, broken hearted, doesn't mean that your heart is broken. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about it's turned to ashes. In fact, he says that in another verse or two down, which we won't get to. But he changes beauty. That he takes ashes and he makes them into something beautiful. Dust sometimes makes us believe that God's no longer interested in us, no longer cares. But in the garden when Adam sinned, even though we had not yet been born, our hearts were turned to dust. Can't be glued back together. But you know what? I'll tell you that. Actually, I love this. I love that our hearts are dust. you know why? It's because when God decided to make man and woman, what did He use? He used dust. He created us from the dust of the ground. And when He did something that no one had ever done before to heal a blind man from birth, what did He do? Took some dust. Put a little spittle in it. What does that make, by the way? When you put water, when you put liquid with dust, what do you get? Mud or clay. <laughs> do you see where this is moving? Do you see where this is moving? Because now when He takes the dust of our lives and He puts His Spirit into it, He can mold us into what He wants us to be. And that broken heart, that broken heart is a heart of stone. And He gives us a heart of flesh. He does these things. He gives us hope. Not only that, there's one other thing. Well, actually there's two. To proclaim freedom to the captives. You know, when the people of Judah, and uh, I'm... I'm presuming some knowledge of history here, but when they were taken into captivity, they lost their homes, they lost their loved ones, they, they lost everything. They lost their city, they lost their temple. They, they lost their identity, who they were. In captivity, they longed to hear that freedom was at hand. They longed to see the king destroy the enemy. Now, when you look at this piece here, what you're actually talking about is the king being victorious and something in our lives changing to such a degree that that freedom that we experience is, is simply, well, liberating. In, uh, in 2000, I was probably on one of the most difficult assignments I have ever been on. That's not exactly true. I was deployed to France <laughs> in uh, support of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And uh, yeah, the toughest thing I had to do was figure out what the little fork up at the top of the plate was for. 
what do you do with that thing, you know? And anyway, so one of the things that I would do, one of my duties, in addition to taking care of the, whatever there were, 150 souls there, um, was to be a part of the team that did all the memorial services. And so Barb was with me at this point. She was able to come over. They gave me three days during the deployment so she could be there. I mean, how could you not right, go to Paris, right? You're in, you're in France. And one of the things, uh, one of the memorials that I did was at a place called Dragonion, which I think means dragon in, uh, in, in French. But there was a little village outside there uh, that the Americans had liberated when they, when they came up through the south of France. And so I'm there in my, in my uniform and I offer a prayer and a woman, somewhat elderly, she comes up to me and, and grabs my sleeve and she's crying. And she says, she says, thank you for liberating me. I wasn't even born. Thank you for liberating me. And she went on to explain how their little village had been under enemy control for so long and that one day, seriously, she went to sleep, they were gone, and the Americans were there. And she said she cannot, she cannot forget that feeling of being liberated, of being freed. Uh, how did I, our liberation from sin is an amazing, an amazing thing. In fact, whenever I'm discouraged about how the Lord even works in my own life or certainly works in the lives of others, I just look in the mirror and say, Lord, you, you freed me. You liberated me. I know this is real. Finally, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee. And that's when everything is made right. That's when, depending on when you were born, you may get property that you may knew you had, but you had no control over it. You knew nothing uh, about it. You received it's, it's the year of Jubilee, which, and by the way, they, hmm, yeah, that's part of the reason for the captivity. The, the, the ancient Jews weren't real good at keeping that. Uh, nevertheless, that's what that was. It was to restore that which had been lost. It was to restore all things to the way they should be. And also, uh, there's another little verse that comes to my mind where he will restore the year of the locust. Some of you may feel like you're in the year of the locust right now. Well, what does that even mean? That, that means that you're, you're in the desert. You don't feel like there's anything that's coming from your life that gives meaning and value and hope. The Lord can and will and He, he does restore that. I can't give you all of my history right now, but suffice it to say that family was something that was not a, a part, really, of my upbringing. And uh, when we got married, we, 
went down to uh, Dallas Seminary and we brought our girls over to see my grandmother. Because my grandmother, you know, had never... I don't know that she'd seen any great-grandchildren yet, so she wanted to see her great-grandchildren. So we went over there. We were talking. Actually, just a few miles. They lived in Granbury, Texas. And so uh, I never actually even thought of this, uh, you know, until until I was putting the, the message uh, together. But that would have been a very meaningful moment for her, open to discussing things that she had never talked about before. So one of the things we did was talk about my biological father, who up to that point had never met yet. Didn't even I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know anything about him. And I only met him once. After that, he thought I was a bill collector. And when he found out I wasn't, he said, oh, okay, have a nice life. So uh, anyway, that's not the end of that story. Otherwise, I wouldn't be telling it, (laughs) right? So what happened was we started talking about them. And I said, you know, don't even know if they're alive. My grandparents, my biological father's parents, and, uh, and she said, oh, yeah, they just live right up the road. I, I didn't express it to her, but I'll tell you what, my first feeling was anger. You mean I have grandparents that I have never met and they're less than 25 miles from here? Are you kidding me? So when we left there, we went. We, we, we went and cold turkey knocked on the door. He opened the door. And he looked at me so funny and he says, Steve. Now, I'm not Steve, I'm John, but Steve is my older brother. And he could see all that. Come in, come in. Barb was with me. Come in. And on the mantle of the fireplace is a picture of my mom. <laughs> and they began to tell us that for years they, made, they got presents for us boys at Christmas time. And would hold on to them in the hopes that someday, one day, they would be able to give them to us. And that they loved us. (laughs) Well, a lot of stories came from that encounter that I can't begin to tell except, except for this. I had a family that loved me. And I never knew it. Never met them. Never met them, yet I, who they did not know and had never met, was part of their family. Isn't that an amazing thing? Isn't that what the Lord does with us? If Jubilee means nothing else, it means that He will restore all things. Now, ultimate Jubilee, we wait for that day. But He gives us pieces, doesn't He? Hasn't He given you pieces in your life where you understand that He is in the business. He is in the business of restoration and redemption. He stands ready to give not only what is to be restored, but what you've never had before. He longs to heal you. In conclusion, Paul Harvey told a story. Some of you may not even know who Paul Harvey is. It's, it's your loss. Uh, I invite you to look him up on the Internet. But he tells a story about a, 
family who on Christmas Eve, they had a tradition where the mother and the children would go to work. I mean, go to work. They would go to church. And the father would stay home and read the paper. He wasn't a bad man. Uh, you know, he was a good man as, as men go. He wasn't immoral, certainly, but he just, he thought that the notion of a baby being born of a virgin and growing up and living and dying for our sin, he, he thought that was nonsense. So anyway, as he, they left for church, he sat down reading his paper and then he hears a thump up against the window. And he looks over at the window. What was that? He hears it again. What was that? He hears it again. Finally, he sees what it is, a bird trying to get in. So he says, it is really cold. By the way, it was really cold where they were at. And he wanted to get in the house, so he's had compassion on this bird. So he goes out to get the, uh, see if he can get the bird in the house. So every time he would get near the bird, the bird would take off, you know, and 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 it knocked himself silly up against the glass, and so he fell into bushes. So he's trying to get him out of the bushes, and the bird is getting all beat up in the bushes, getting away, flying through, uh, half frozen. He wanted to get in the house, but he was too afraid to be caught by, some, you know, I mean, the guy is how I don't know how much bigger you are than a bird, but it's probably pretty scary to the bird. But anyway, he realized that this stupid bird wasn't going to come in the house. And so he says, you stupid bird, don't you understand I'm trying to help you? I am trying to help you. And the man paused and he thought this. He said, if only you understood, you wouldn't fly away. If only, if only I could become a bird, maybe get the little iPad translator, you know, talk to you, you would understand. And it was at that moment that the church bells rang, as they always have on the hour. But when the man heard the bells this time, he fell on his knees and he cried, Oh God, I didn't understand. Jesus' first words, Isaiah 61 give purpose to his last words. It is finished. He accomplished the mission. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God's Son came in human form so that we might understand where we have come and what our relationship with Him should be. For what reason we were separated and how it is that we could be restored to God. He came to heal. He came to free. He came to proclaim the gospel. May this Christmas you understand that all the stuff we see in our society related to Christmas has nothing to do whatever with Christmas. What I just shared today, that's Christmas. And may it be embedded in your heart. Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, for what you've done in our behalf. We stand amazed uh, that you have done these things and, and you did them for the joy that was set before you. So, Lord, give us the joy of this season that only comes through Jesus Christ, your Son.
in whose precious, holy, adorable, wonderful, magnificent name we pray. Amen.